There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I wanted to read a short piece from a man by the name of St. Francis de Sales. He says, go on in all simplicity. Do not be so anxious to win a quiet mind, and it will be all the quieter. Do not examine so closely into the progress of your soul. Do not crave so much to be perfect, but let your spiritual life be formed by your duties and by the actions which are called forth by circumstances. Do not take overmuch thought for tomorrow. God, who has led you safely on so far, will lead you on to the end. Be altogether at rest in the loving, holy confidence which you ought to have in his heavenly providence. St. Francis de Sales. I have been deeply taught by some of his works. So let's look at contentment this afternoon. In Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Contentment. Remember that Paul is in prison when he says these things, probably a terribly messy, perhaps very cold, rat-infested, cockroach-infested place. Scholars tell us that he probably was chained on both sides to two soldiers 24 hours a day. It couldn't have been anything that we would call comfortable. We need to learn the lesson that Paul learned. I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, do you think that that situation is limited to the Apostle Paul because he was such a great spiritual giant? I don't think so. I think that is exactly what God wants you and me to learn. But little by little, he trains us along these lines. And now I'm going to overlap a little bit of some of the things that I said this morning. There was an interesting time when I was living with a group of jungle Indians who were then called Aukas. They had speared five missionaries to death, one of whom was my husband, Jim Elliott. In the providence of God, I was given the privilege of going to live with those Indians two years later. My little daughter and I quickly learned to eat monkey meat and live in a house without walls. We had six poles and a thatched roof, no floors, no walls, no furniture. And fortunately, we did have a thatched roof. These dear jungle people could not have been kinder to us. And here we were 
couple of outsiders, they'd never seen white people like us, teaching us how to keep fires going, often bringing wood for us because it was obvious to them that we weren't much good at hauling logs. They graciously offered to us everything that they had. The women worked on their plantations of manioc, which is a starchy tuber, which was the staple food. Looks a little bit like an elongated potato, and it was a tuber that they cultivated. That was really the main food that they had outside of the hunting that the men would sometimes bring home. So the men were responsible for hunting meat with their spears and their blowguns. When they returned from the hunt, usually at about five o'clock in the afternoon, everyone was eager to see what meat there might possibly be for supper. Usually it was monkey, and they nearly always had, they had nearly always shared some of that with us. And I have to say that I was never terribly fond of monkey meat, but when I succeeded in getting them to cut me off either a leg or an arm before they singed it into the fire, then it was edible to me. But most of the time they would singe the entire monkey, and you know what burnt hair smells like. Well, burnt monkey hair is worse. So I persuaded them after a while to give me a piece of a monkey's leg or arm before they singed it so that I could take the, let the uh, stuff off and not have it singed. So Valerie and I had one pot, two spoons, two bowls. And these were the only things that we had by way of cooking. We had a roof over our heads, a fire beside my hammock, as everyone else had. Valerie slept at night on a bamboo slab, as the rest of the children did, and played with the children all day, every day, swimming much of the time in the clear, lovely river that ran past our house. And so we were certainly contented. Well, I could never thank the Lord enough for giving to Valerie and me the two years that we had with those kind friends. The clearing was beautiful, kept so by the women who were wonderfully cheerful, seldom complaining, often laughing and joking with each other. They were definitely contented. The hunters were also contented. We had no worries of, to speak of. My job all day, every day, was to learn their language. And, of course, the only way that I could learn their language was to sit down with them and my notebook and pen and try to get them to speak slowly enough so that I could write down what they were saying. Now, it didn't, I had no idea what they, would, what they were saying. I could just write down in phonetic alphabet whatever the sounds were with the hope that over months and maybe years I might be able to learn their language fluently. I had had to learn Spanish first, of course, when I first arrived in Ecuador, and then I had learned the language of the Colorado Indians, which is a totally different language, and now it was my daily job to learn Alka, which, although it was very difficult, I loved, and I thank God that he really had given me uh, some, some kind of brains that absorbed different languages. But now I want to tell you about a dear widow named Mrs. Kershaw. When I came home from college for Christmas vacation, that would be back in 1948, I found this old lady hunched over the sink in the kitchen. I spoke to her, but there was no response. 
my sister happened to come into the kitchen at that moment, and my sister said to me, she's deaf. <laughs> I trembled all over. And indeed, Mrs. Kershaw was totally deaf. But what an icon of contentment this lady was. Her day consisted in washing dishes, baking thousands of brown sugar cookies for the Howard family, praying for us, serving our family in any way that she could, seeking to cheer up our poor old Nana. She was my step-grandmother, and she really was quite a miserable person just because she didn't really like much of anything or anybody, and she was very deaf. So Mrs. Kershaw did her best as a very handicapped lady herself to try to encourage poor dear Nana. So Mrs. Kershaw, of course, couldn't hear a word that any of us said unless we were close enough for her to use her little microphone. We had to practically put our mouths on her microphone. And every now and then, she'd speak about something totally unrelated to anything, yet she would smile, realizing that she had probably said something that had nothing to do with what we were talking about at the dinner table. She was sweet and wonderfully contented. God was enough. Are you contented with your lot in life? In Philippians 4, 6, we read, Do not be anxious about anything. Now, how are we not to be anxious about anything? Well, by getting down on our knees and saying, Lord, here is my anxiety. I am going to give it to you. And he knows how to handle that. It's a simple gesture. But I, being very much of the earth earthy, need all the help I can get. And it does help me to get down on my knees and say, Lord, here is this anxiety. I can't handle it, but you can. And I'm going to give it to you, and I'm not going to retrieve it. Well, the first time the Lord brought that gesture to mind was the early morning when I was staying with my daughter and her husband, who had four children at that time. There was a knock on my bedroom door at 5 o'clock in the morning. The two of them came in to announce that they were expecting number five. My heart just sank. Not because I objected at all to my daughter having 15 or 20 children, if the Lord wanted to give them to her, but it just seemed a bit too soon after number four. I felt like suggesting to my son-in-law, couldn't you sleep in the backyard for a few years? <laughs> but of course, I didn't say that. After they left the room, I was smitten to the heart with how nasty that thought was because it was absolutely none of my business, how many babies they might have. Well, any of you mothers-in-law, take a word from me. It is none of our business what our children and our in-laws do with, our, with their lives. We can pray as hard as we want to, but we are not to be interfering with matters that are not our business. The Lord prompted me to get down on my knees and lift up my hands. And I said, Lord, I can't handle this, but you can. So I am going to give it to you. And the Lord did give me peace. Then when number six was coming along, and number seven, and number eight, it had already been dealt with way back there, and I didn't need to deal with it again. I was contented. And just for your information, as far as I know, uh, Valerie has finished having babies, but she does have eight children. The youngest now is uh, seven years old. Philippians 4, 6 to 7, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. May I see the hands of those of you who 
those of you who find that easy. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, not in everything by argument, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Now that's a discipline, isn't it? It's a discipline to be contented with what God has assigned. So here I am with three points for you again. Number one, contentment cannot dwell with anger. A letter came from a lady saying, My faith has been challenged. There has been bitterness in my heart toward God. I have been angry at him for withholding this blessing from me. Now, she didn't say what the blessing was, but I have occasionally been asked if I have ever been bitter or angry toward God because he took from me two much-loved husbands. Unless my memory completely forsakes me, I think I can honestly say no. Because God is my Heavenly Father. He loves me with an everlasting love. The proof of that is the cross. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. I love the old gospel hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to thy blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow wounded down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? For the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Our Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for any of us, and only he knows what that is. For he is the all-wise and the omniscient. Even an earthly father wants the best for his child but does not always know what that is. God knows not only what we need, but when we need it. And when he withholds from us the one thing that we feel sure would make us happy, it's well to remember his promise that he will meet all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, if we don't have it now, we don't need it now. Perhaps he will give it to you next week, but that does not indicate indifference, forgetfulness, or poor timing. His timing is always perfect. Resentment makes us vulnerable to Satan, who is the destroyer. Think what a dangerous, put, a dangerous position we put ourselves in if we are angry with God. And I've had more than one letter from women telling me that they're angry at God. And I'm always nettled at how, many, how anybody would have the guts, shall we say, to be angry with God. If, the, if there is there anything else to which we can turn. 
In heaven or on earth, there is no safe refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we know that he is the ruler of all. He's got the whole world in his hands. Anybody know that song? I love that. Can't remember the name of the black lady that used to sing it. Can you tell me who it was? No? Anybody remember? Ethel Waters. That was, yes, she was terrific. Yeah. He's got the whole world in his hands. So shall we deliberately reject such a refuge? We have only come, we have only this moment. God does not usually give us previews of coming attractions. But I can look back over many decades, remembering how worried I sometimes was and how bewildered at things that God had permitted to happen to me. But now I see them all as a golden chain of mercies, gifts from a merciful father who, like the father that Jesus described, would never give his son a snake if he asked for a fish. What looks to us like a good thing might actually ruin us. How thankful I am for God's withholdings, for his faithful unfailings. Now, as I look forward to what may be left of my future, I think of John Lee Whittier's lines, I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. Well, I don't want to miss those islands whose beauty I never dreamed of in those anxious times. I want to be able honestly to say, Father, I trust you. Forgive me for being so foolish as to imagine that you have made a mistake. Help me to receive grace to keep a quiet heart. What this is about. Sure that I am in this very moment held in the everlasting arms. Contentment cannot dwell with anger. So if you are aware that you are still filled with anger or bitterness, you will not be able to find contentment until you deal with that sin. Is anger itself an evil thing? We know that Jesus himself was angry on a number of occasions with the money changers in the temple and angry with the Pharisees at times. It's anger occurring in us sinners that easily and quickly becomes evil. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. And S.M. Hutchins wrote, no man had a greater right to be angry with me and the whole human race than did our love Lord on the cross. He would have been perfectly justified in calling out a couple of the larger caliber angels to destroy the world. But he looked down upon us and asked his father to forgive us. Number two, contentment cannot dwell with self-pity. Self-pity is satanic. When we are strongly tempted to feel sorry for ourselves as though we ought to be surrounded and propped up and hovered over, think of what the Lord Jesus did for us. Remember when he made it very clear to his disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem and was going to be killed. He taught them. He prayed for them, showing them the way of the cross. 
He is on his way to Jerusalem where he is to suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and he is going to be killed. There's a prophetic word in Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 50, verse 7. Peter says just what you and I probably would have said. I can imagine him grabbing Jesus by the arm and saying, No, Lord, this must never happen to you. You remember Jesus' response? He turned in anger to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not think as God does. You think as men do. It's very easy for us to do the same thing, isn't it? We don't want to suffer. We don't want Jesus to suffer. But he did suffer. He planned to suffer. And he still suffers in you and me. Have you thought about that? You who may be suffering right now, he is with you. He understands. He was determined that his face would be set like a flint. He was going to Jerusalem no matter what. So when we begin to sink into a swamp of self-pity, feeling sorry for poor little me, we ought to realize how dangerous a position we have put ourselves in. What should we do when we are suddenly aware of self-pity? Try this. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, here is this self-pity. I am going to give it to you. I ask you to transform my heart to enable me to quit feeling sorry for myself. And I can remember the headmistress of the boarding school that I went to in Florida, and she more than once said to me, Betty Howard, you are feeling sorry for yourself, and we do not need you in this school. And you can either snap out of it, or you can leave. So she was a tall, redoubtable woman, probably weighed 90 pounds more than I do. And when she came sailing into a room, it was like a galleon in full sail. If you were to ask me what was my relationship with Mrs. DuBose, I would have to say that it was one of abject terror. I knew full well, having had the kind of background my parents had instilled in us, that Mrs. DuBose was training us, constantly exhorting us to quit feeling sorry for ourselves and start doing something to make somebody else happy. That's a great method for getting yourself out of the doldrums. When Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Do you want to lose your life or do you want to save it? It's human nature to want to save ourselves. I don't think we'll ever get, that, get over that until we see the Lord face to face. But it's one of those disciplines that God wants us to get serious about. Think of those throughout history who have been willing to lose their lives for Christ. There are 400 martyrs killed every day, today. Did you know that? That is more in the last 50 years than in all the previous years since Christ came to earth. 400 martyrs per day. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. That's what Jesus said. So let's get rid of self-pity. 
Let's not go rushing off to cry on somebody else's shoulder. How much better simply to go to the foot of the cross. One of the byproducts of self-pity is depression. A woman writes, I fell into despair and the lie of severe depression. I went from one psychiatric hospital to another, running from God and living in sin. He taught me the concept of doing the next thing. I had never heard you share that before. What God taught me is to use my work, my duties, and my responsibilities as a means of controlling my thought life. And the seat of the emotions and the will is right where Satan attacks the hardest. So God would teach me to just get out of bed, she said. Don't just lie there and decide if you feel like getting out of bed. Don't lie there and assess what you have to do today and then decide what you feel like doing today. She says, I told my feelings to stay in bed. The Lord told me to get up and get going. Oh, what a lie depression can be and what bondage it brings to its, its captives. And what wonderful consolation obedience can bring. She says, it's been nine years now since I have taken any medication or any silly psychobabble-type counseling. I love what Oswald Chambers says about the people who find it difficult to get up in the morning. He says, get up first and think about it later. <laughs> Try that. Get up first and think about it later. Very good advice. I'm convinced that there is no consolation like obedience. It's wonderful how God can console us just through his Holy Spirit and his love and his word. We don't need to be taking other people's precious time. You know, everybody seems to be rushing off to very expensive counselors. In a little book that I have about that size called Great Souls at Prayer, I found this. O thou who dost teach us to seek first thy kingdom and its righteousness, teach me to say, thy will be done. Before I say, give me my daily bread. Teach me to accept thy will as the foundation of my happiness and other things as only in its superstructure. I am more afraid of the hunger of the body than of the hunger of the spirit. Convince me that it would not profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Show me that it is the only possession of my soul that makes the possession of the world any gain. Impress me with the truth that no thing can give me joy if I myself am not joyful. That is contentment. In Ezekiel 24, the Lord told him that he is going to take away at a stroke the light of his life. And Ezekiel writes, In the evening my wife died, and in the morning I did as I was commanded. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord comes down with this tremendous statement, I am going to take away at a stroke the light of your life. And Ezekiel did the next thing. Whatever it was, until he went to bed that night, and he said, in the morning, I did as I was commanded. You know, we don't need to sit down in a little pile of self-pity and hope that people are going to shore you up and prop you up. Do what is commanded. Now, there was a man who knew the voice of the Lord and obeyed it at once. 
My friend Terry wrote to tell me how she and her sister had sat a long vigil waiting for their mother to die. She died at about three o'clock in the morning. Terry wrote to thank me for telling her about doing the next thing because she said, I just want you to know what I did. After mother died, that morning I opened all the windows, let the sunshine come in, replaced all the flowers in the room with fresh flowers, took the sheets and the towels and the bedding off, put it in the laundry, put on fresh sheets, and fixed the whole room up just as beautifully as the way mother always had it. Harry said, he can train us as to what is really the problem when we are so clouded by despair and feelings. He can train us. So I do thank God for those who get the message that contentment cannot dwell with self-pity. Terry was liberated from bondage. Her letter ended with, glory, hallelujah, I'm learning how to die. So relinquish, let go. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, the Apostle Paul couldn't possibly have been able to make himself available as a slave if he had not already dealt with self-pity, which was a temptation, I'm sure. Never suppose that there's anything unique about our particular kind of suffering. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And that's what Paul said, I repeat. I don't think there's going to be any spiritual burnout if we act in that way. There is a sense in which we should be willing to be burned out for God. The great missionary to Burma, Henry Martin, said, Lord, let me burn out for thee. Jim Elliot had written in his journal, have my blood, Lord, have it all. Let it be poured out for the life of the world. Undoubtedly, Jim was speared to death. On another page, he wrote, I don't ask for a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. He died at 28. And Jesus died, we suppose, in his very early 30s. Let me read a poem by Elizabeth Charles. Is thy cruise of comfort wasting? Rise and share it with another. And through all the years of famine, it shall serve thee and thy brother. Is thy burden hard and heavy? Do thy steps drag heavily? Help to bear thy brother's burden. God will bear both it and thee. However perplexed you may be about some question of truth, one refuge and resource is always available. You could do something for somebody besides yourself. And when your own burden is heaviest, you can always lighten a little bit somebody else's burden. Charles Spurgeon tells about a woman who was confined to bed for 20 years. He says, one thing I'm sure of, the more we have of this, the more useful we shall assuredly become and the this that he is referring to is giving thanks for everything. He goes on to say nothing has had a greater effect among the minds of thoughtless men than the continued thankfulness of true Christians. 
there are sick beds which have been more fruitful in conversations than pulpits. I have known women confined to their chambers by the space of 20 years together whose remarkable cheerfulness of spirit has been the talk of the entire district. Many there have been who have called to see poor Sarah in her cottage, knowing that she has scarce been a single day without distressing pain and have heard her voice and looked into that dear smiling face and have learned the reality of godliness. The bedridden saint has been a power throughout all the district, and many have turned to God saying, what is this which enables the Christian to give thanks always to God? Part of the answer to that question is, what is it that enables one person to give thanks to God even when they're in the midst of deep sorrow and suffering? It is a deliberate choice to give thanks to God. He works with us, but he doesn't always do it for us. He wants us to learn to live in company with him so that we will be in a position to offer blessing and grace to other people, no matter what deep sorrow they may be in. Number three, obedience brings contentment and peace. Do you love Jesus? We can pray about how much we love him, but Jesus didn't ask us to sing and pray and write poetry about him. He said, if you love me, do what I say. That is the only valid test of our commitment to Jesus Christ. Obedience. Do you love him? What do you do about it? Obey. That's the proof of your love for Jesus. Now back to 2 Corinthians 4, which was so wonderfully alive to me when I lived in that strange place with the Alka Indians in my hammock with no walls and no floors and no privacy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now let's never forget that we are nothing but clay pots. And a good many of us are cracked pots. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This surpassing power is not from us, but from God. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? It is so that the life of Jesus may be manifest or visible in this mortal body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So when you go out of here, remember that you are being given over to death. It is a continual lifetime process. Deaths in many ways, but it is for the glory of God. It's in order that he might resurrect you into a shining Christian like Mrs. Kershaw like that woman who was in bed for 20 years and brings joy to everyone who sees her. Perhaps you know somebody like that. We are being given over to death so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in this mortal body. And this mortal body that you're looking at is almost 75 years old. So then death is at work in us and life in you. Well, I love that beautiful hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. 
One stanza that is usually left out of most of the hymn books is, Oh, safe and happy shelter. Oh, refuge tried and sweet. Oh, trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch, a wondrous dream was given. So seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. It is a happy shelter, that cross. It was the symbol and the instrument of torture in Jesus' day. But Jesus Christ's death on that cross has completely transformed it into a safe and happy shelter. And there's another lovely hymn, which the older I get, the more I use it. I don't know what's going to happen or what's ahead. So I go back to this hymn. In heavenly love abiding, no change my heart can fear. And safe is such abiding, confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may rage about me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me, nor can I be dismayed. Wherever he may guide me, no want shall turn me back. My shepherd is beside me, and nothing can I lack. His wisdom ever waketh, his sight is never dim. He knows the way he taketh, and I will walk with him. Green pastures are before me, which yet I have not seen. Bright skies will soon be o'er me, where the dark clouds have been. My hope I cannot measure. My path to life is free. My Savior has my treasure, and he will walk with me. May I suggest to all of us, myself included, that we wake in the morning with thanksgiving for another day. For some, it may hold very difficult assignments, scary ones perhaps. Let's not forget that the Lord is not worried about anything. He knows the way through the wilderness, and all I have to do is follow. One of my life verses is Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And I have never forgotten those words in a large assembly in New Jersey when I was a teenager. Dr. Virginia Blakesley was a missionary from Africa who told of, an ex of a harrowing experience. She was alone in a little house in the jungle. One night she heard a tremendous screaming and shouting. Then she saw flaming torches as a group of wild men rushed into her clearing, raced around her house, and then strangely disappeared back into the jungle. This unsettling experience was repeated several nights. Dr. Blakesley could do nothing but pray. The leader of the group then appeared one day in daylight, demanding to see her watchman. I have no watchman, she said. You lie. You have many watchmen, and I demand that you show me who they are. He suggested that he look in her house. He came out baffled. Did you find him, she said? No, but each night we have come here and we have found strong men on your roof. We feared them. Who are they? She explained that God himself must have sent his watchman to protect her. With tears pouring down her cheeks, Dr. Blakesley receded, re recited with tremendous intensity those wonderful words in Isaiah 50, verse 7. And I was right there in the very front row, 14 years old, listening. 
the Lord God, and this is the way she said it, the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Well, I never forgot those words, those powerful words from Isaiah. When I was about 10 or 11, I came across a prayer written by a young woman whose parents had been guests in our home. She was Betty Scott, who went to China where her fiance, John Stam, had been working for a year. Both she and her husband were captured by Chinese communists. Betty was forced to watch as her husband's head was chopped off. And then her head was chopped off. When I was 10 or 11, I came across Betty's covenant. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life, now and forever. I memorized those lines of total acceptance, kept them in my Bible for years. Perhaps some in my audience are aware that you can't honestly say that you are contented. Things have happened to mess up your life. People have done you in, in one way or another. Someone on whom you had counted has let you down. Maybe you'd say that God himself has let you down. He hasn't. He loves you with an everlasting love, and he wants your trust and your obedience. Then you will learn contentment as you learn to trust and obey. I want to close with the beautiful words written long ago by St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.